This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very good afternoon to you. Between now and one, you will spend a little bit of time in the Midwest of the state just taking a look around some of the farms in this patch because it's now been, well, a month since Cyclone Saroja hit the Midwest of the state and there is still so much work to be done. The lists are very long as you move from one farm to the next. But thankfully, the volunteer fencing organisation Blaze Aid is in town and helping out those farmers do a whole range of different things, not just with the fencing, but there's just the clean-up process of moving tin and helping out the farmers who are, well, in one of the busiest periods of the year around seeding time. You'll take a look around the Midwest just after half past 12 today, and the WA timber industry is working on a new legal framework to try and get farmers interested in growing trees on their private property. Taking a look at those tweaks to the framework shortly here on the Country Hour. Six past 12 and the livestock exporter, Rural Export and Trading Western Australia or RETWA is busy getting as many shipments as possible to the Middle East before this year's three-month moratorium starts on the 1st of June. RETWA's General Manager, Murray Frangs, says having the supply chain as full as possible is critical to reducing the impact of the moratorium on long-term Persian Gulf customers who rely on the supply of fresh sheep meat in their diets. Murray Frangs, how many more shipments are scheduled to leave WA between now and the start of the moratorium? Uh, We will have one next week and one two weeks after, so there's just two shipments uh, remaining. Well, uh, RETWA certainly had its share of COVID drama in the lead-up to last year's moratorium uh, when some of the crew on board the LQ8, I think it was, tested positive for coronavirus, and then you had to apply for an exemption to allow the shipment to proceed, albeit on another ship. What precautions are in place now to ensure that doesn't happen again? Yes, certainly um, COVID has been something to to reckon with for for all of us. I think all shipping enterprises have improved their their structures around onboarding and offboarding. All ports have certainly improved their capacity. At the moment, the, the ability for us to be able to control who is coming on and off the vessels through making sure that they've got negative PCR tests at that the point of onboarding has been the key and, and also constantly measuring temperature and conditions throughout the vessel. Not generally our crew, that's the, the main concern for us because those we can control is actually the interactions that they have at the various ports, which is the, the most difficult to manage because different ports have got different controls. I mean, what we expect here in Fremantle will be very different to a bunkering port in Singapore or even a discharge port in the Gulf. On the ABC WA, this is the Country Hour. Belinda Varischetti with you. And this afternoon, catching up with Murray Frangs. He's the general manager of the livestock export company, Retwa. Murray, one of the other really big challenges has been, well, cost of sheep. Very expensive, and also supply uh, really down. We've had what, in 2020 last year almost two million sheep 
transported to the eastern states as you know growers have struggled with the seasonal conditions here, but also taking advantage of some of those incredible prices for sheep as producers on the east coast restock after the drought. So what sort of pressure is that putting on your business? Our markets and our, and our customers have you know, committed to the business that you know, mutually we've developed over the last 50 or something years. They're not fickle or, or conditional off-takers. So the markets have been absorbing the pricing trends, which are driven by the factors that you've you know, been mentioning and are well away from their own market. So yeah, the pricing is definitely causing a strain. And for, for these months, the capacity to source the preferred heavier sheep is also more difficult with the new season lamb drop coming through to the market. So with that combination of, you know, the sheep being so expensive out of, out of Australia, uh, the supplies are tight, you're approaching the next moratorium for this year, how much more attractive are Australia's competitors becoming to the importers in this market? Without doubt, the last few years, they've becoming more and more attractive. Our traditional market and customers have awkwardly been advising us that, you know, we leave them no choice but to open up and seek alternative supply sources. As I mentioned before, you know, the markets are accepting of the pricing variations, and this is largely out of the commitment to maintaining the the quality and, and the consistency that Australian, and particularly West Australian sheep producers are able to provide them. What they can't accept is the lack of supply for three to four months. So, so ultimately, we've really forced their hand to invest in, in in developing alternative supply chains for the longer term supply. And even worse, I think, is really that they're tending to accept maybe a lower quality and and eroding some of the market perception of sheep meat in, in their own society as as a premium source of red meat that we've worked so hard from Australia to develop. Which competitors should Australia be particularly concerned about? At the moment, the pressure is really coming from three main sources. Uh, one would be live imports from sort of the sub-Saharan African countries, primarily from Sudan, Ethiopia and Somalia. Being geographically close, obviously, it's much cheaper on the freight. And whilst the quality is something that would generally never make it into our own consignments, to a degree, it is just better than nothing for them. The other one would be actually developing a more direct supply chain from South Africa. They've still got quite a long way to go to achieve the scale that you know that we've developed from Western Australia. But last year they did manage to you know do a full shipment and this year they will repeat that and then try for an increase. So that shipment uh, the, going the, the, during the moratorium period, Australia's moratorium period, that's when that shipment has gone from South Africa? Yes, correct. Yeah, yes, okay. Correct. But not outside of that moratorium period at this stage? Uh, not yet. Not yet, no. No, they, as I said, you know, the, their, their supply chain is not really developed sufficiently to do this full time or continuously, but there'll be a tipping point somewhere where they can put together one or two or three shipments in a row and then suddenly they'll want to do 12 months supply. Yeah, that will be a tipping point. What was the, what was the third competitor you were just about yeah, to say, Yeah, sorry. Mark? It would be forcing the market to switch their source of protein overall, to, which would be towards more poultry. I mean, it's still a larger source of protein throughout the Gulf region where we're supplying, but we would just be pushing them to develop that further. That would be the, the third, so it would be a product switch for them. Only just recently, another sort of you know, a market opportunity 
I guess, has opened up. And this is with the trade breakthrough that came, well, just last month that cleared the way Mm -hmm. for sheep exports to Saudi Arabia. So resuming after a a 10-year suspension sparked by an animal welfare standoff, basically. Do you see real opportunity in that market after such a long break? Yes, yes, it is definitely a real opportunity. Quite a lot of work is going to have to go into being able to to reinstate it and reinstate it at, at a good volume. And we'll need to work within our supply chain here in Australia to get to that and certainly Western Australia. But the Saudis have obviously foremost. been getting their supplies from elsewhere for a, a decade. Why would they suddenly yep. come back here? Well, it'll be an interesting one for us to have to deal with because uh, it will mean that we are going to directly be having to compete on a price basis. When we were supplying Saudi before, we were actually a preferred supplier. We'd spent a long time building up those relationships and, and that supply chain. We've been away, now we come back on. They haven't been lacking supply. So now we're going to have to either displace someone else or try and find some way to, to increase their consumption. So we're going to have to fight for this on a price basis. The immediate factors that are setting prices will, will make that quite difficult. But over time, we still need to meet the issue of having suitable traceability of the vaccination of the sheep to be able to meet the protocols that they require. And, so, and that'll, that'll be the, the priority for us to So that on. would be your sort of advice for uh, sheep producers in this state, just urging to get that uh, vaccination for scabby mouth? Correct. Look, it's something which needs to start now because it will take some time for it to flow through the system. And once it's there, then we will have the opportunity to compete again. The pricing at the current time, it, it does make it a bit difficult, but it's. Uh, I think the drivers for the current pricing for, for sheep, certainly out of Western Australia, are, are not something which are going to remain forever. So there is a chance that that pricing will come back and, and will put us in the frame. We're, we're not hugely far out of the, of the market, but we're a long way from what we were, say, six months ago in pricing, and and we'll have to see where it gets to. Murray, good to meet you. Thanks for being part of the Country Hour today. Yep, my pleasure. Thank you. Murray Franks, he's the General Manager of Rural Export and Trading WA, and he's been in the job, it's just over six months now since he's basically taken over the reins from Mike Gordon. Quarter past 12. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. Now tell me the truth. Have you been on a shopping spree recently? Now, a lot of farmers have been spending up rather big because there's this combination at the moment, really good seasonal conditions for most, strong commodity prices, and put those two things together and it's really creating a strong appetite for investment. And a host of government tax incentives are just sort of kicking that spending into overdrive. Clint Jasper has the details. Demand for machinery is red hot. We're getting a lot of machinery that's sold before it's even manufactured. There's build slots that we can seize in the system and, uh, and that's what we're selling off. The yard at Agrimac in Ballarat is tellingly sparse. Territory sales manager Will DeFagley says a host of federal tax breaks designed to boost investment have supercharged demand. Farmers generally, they have two lists. They've got a a shopping list and a wish list. And because of these government incentives, they've brought their shopping list sales or purchases forward. And they've been able to dig into the wish list, such as, you know, capacity upgrades, 
incorporating more technology. Almost 12 months ago, in a bid to stimulate an economy shaken up by coronavirus lockdowns, the federal government expanded the instant asset write-off. The types of businesses that could access the scheme was widened, from those with an annual turnover of less than $50 million up to $500 million, and the assets they could buy from $30,000 to $150,000. Then, in the federal budget, the government introduced temporary full expensing, which allowed businesses to fully depreciate an asset in a single tax year. Some small and medium-sized businesses could also use this measure for second-hand assets. The market's exploded, and we've also seen that reflected into the trade market where the dealers are just emptying their yards with second-hand machinery. So if you're after a second-hand 120-horsepower tractor with a front-end loader, well, forget about it. Either wait six months for a new one or wait till maybe the middle of next year and you might be able to find something. It's not just machinery. At Paradu Prime in Western Victoria, lamb producer Tim Leeming is busy pregnancy testing his flock of ewes. It's work that can now be carried out day or night, rain, hail or shine, thanks to new undercover sheepyards. So it's not only very beneficial for the people that are working with the livestock, but it's also really good for the livestock. As you can imagine, you have a concentration of livestock in yards with, with heaps of rainfall during winter where you get really muddy conditions and it's not good for stock or all the people that are working with them. The ability to fully depreciate the new yards has allowed Tim Leeming to undertake some significant long-term investments. They've been a really big incentive um, for us to uh, invest uh, not just short-term but um, with long-term uh, components of our business to make our, um, our businesses more efficient. RSM Australia Associate Director Tracy Dunn says while the government's tax incentives have undoubtedly had the intended effect of boosting investment, she's worried that some may not have considered the full long-term ramifications of using them without proper tax advice. The measures themselves are quite complex, so from an accountant's perspective, it's proven to be somewhat challenging to work out how their measures actually apply. When you see all these ads out there opening the rural press on social media, urging farmers to, quote, make the most of these measures before the various deadlines shut, does that kind of concern you uh, as a tax professional? It's very concerning, Clint. The concern comes from the lack of, not, of tax expertise that these businesses that are promoting buy assets now make the most of this, uh, this measure, claim tax deductions. But unless you know exactly the circumstances of that client or that taxpayer, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. So it's absolutely essential that any of these business owners that are looking to make purchases they need to get advice from their tax advisors before going out and purchasing new assets. As you start gathering all the receipts together to do tax returns this year, can you explain a bit about the complexity from your point of view of working through what these schemes mean for actually filing a business's tax return this year? How much more complex has it made it? It is extremely complex, Clint. Now, I read um, tax legislation for fun. I'm not that much of an interesting person and it took me probably 10 hours solid to work through the explanatory memorandums to get an understanding of how these measures actually work. I've put together for my own benefit a four-page spreadsheet that steps me through the process because I'd not only have 
an instant asset write-off, the backing business um, investment um, measure and the temporary full expensing of depreciating assets. They come in at different timelines. RSM Australia senior partner Tracy Dunn, who, as she just told you, reads tax law for fun. Uh, talking there to Clint Jasper. And you can check out those new sheep yards that Tim Leeming was talking about on tonight's episode of The Business. So that's at quarter to nine on the news channel, or if you're up late enough, quarter past 11 on ABC One. 21 past 12. Well, as you just heard, for many parts of the agricultural industry, this is a really good time to be in the business. But the National Farmers Federation believes with just a little bit more help from tomorrow's federal budget, it could be even better. Here's NFF Chief Executive Tony Ma. We can really turbo boost the economy by getting some fiscal support for things like trade disruptions where an export-orientated industry will always need to partner with government to continue to develop export markets. Biosecurity, sure, there was some funding for biosecurity and that, that is great, really welcome. But we need you know, a long-term funding model and some reform of the systems in terms of roles and responsibilities. So there's certainly a lot that we can partner with from a government perspective. Tony Marr from the National Farmers Federation and all will be revealed in the budget, well, for the agricultural sector and every other sector, uh, all the details revealed by the Treasurer tomorrow night, tomorrow afternoon, sort of our time anyway. 22 past 12, this is the Country Hour on ABC right across Western Australia and very shortly checking in with the newsroom for the headlines and then off to the Bureau of Meteorology. First up, though, the WA timber industry is working on a new legal framework to get farmers interested in growing trees on private property. Now, this all comes after a recent report commissioned by the industry and it highlighted a range of risks that puts off private landholders from signing any long-term agreements. Brad Barr is Resource Manager at West Pine and he says it's important to get this framework right and get more trees in the ground. There is a shortage of pine timber and and that's forecast to get worse over upcoming years. There's been a a shortage of trees planted. Uh, The forest hasn't expanded in line with population and the impacts of bushfires have also killed a lot of the trees that that would have otherwise been been growing and could provide timber for WA home builders in the future. So what we're looking at doing at West Pine and with the support of the South West Timber Hub is to develop some agreements between processes such as West Pine uh, and farmers that would help to reduce a lot of the risks around uh, market and uh, thinning of the forest. So what we would do is we would enter into an agreement with the farmer, provide advice where we requested, help them to establish some pine trees, and West Pine would undertake to come in and thin those forests at the appropriate times so that they're growing correctly and, and progressing towards making saw logs. And then we would also agree on a, on a price for the final product indexed by an agreed indexation so that a farmer making a decision today on a on a investment would have pretty reasonable expectation that the price for his his goods for his forest is going to keep up 
and provide the return that he was expecting when he went into the deal you know, 25 years earlier. Yeah, because it's a long-term prospect, right? And some farmers might feel like they've been burnt in the past by entering into these arrangements and then not necessarily getting the returns that they thought they would. How do you envision that this will help get around that? One of the things that's changed is that the market for the intermediate products or the thinnings have increased. Uh, There's not only domestic users of industrial wood, as it's called, which is... um, the particle board plant in Dardanup and also the uh, silicon smelter at Simcoa are domestic users of the product. There's also very strong international markets for wood chips, for pulp and paper, and also bioenergy. So it's a lot less likely that a, a farmer will find that he's unable to get his crop tended in time to enable them to be growing properly. And in fact, part of the agreement that West Pine is, is devising is that West Pine will guarantee that that thinning will take place. And uh, if we actually can't sell the products, then, then we will undertake the thinning at our own cost. So just to clarify, essentially you're looking to have a clearer set of arrangements around the thinning, but also the longer term prospect or, or price that a farmer will get and clarifying the time frames a bit clearer. That's right. So we want to take as many of the risks out of it. You know, investing in a 25 to 27 year crop is a daunting prospect for most people. And if we can help eliminate the market risk and the price risk, then we feel that that will overcome two of the burdens or two of the barriers towards helping people make that decision to invest in a long term profitable crop. Ultimately, a clearer legal framework to ensure that farmers don't get burnt and they can be confident they won't be burnt if they give a large section of their farm up for plantation timber? That's the objective, yes. Well, it remains to be seen if, if it will be attractive to farmers or not, but uh, we certainly don't want to die wondering. You'd be working on an off-take agreement arrangement. Can you walk me through that? Yeah, it's still a work in progress, but uh, essentially what it would be is a, uh, a farmer would enter into a an agreement with uh, West Pine, for instance, and we would agree up front the prices for the intermediate products that are that are coming off. We'd be taking on the risk for that, that we would actually be able to move those products at that price because we don't necessarily use those products within our own process, the young trees. But then we would certainly be using the trees from the, the second thinning at about age 20 and the final harvest at about age 27. And so we'd, we'd be putting on the line that we can buy those logs at a given price with an indexation so that hopefully it keeps up with the real price movements and, and input costs. And uh, then we would commit to purchasing those those logs when they're, when they're due. Some would say you've got your work cut out for you given the skyrocketing price of land. Yes, well, that's one of the reasons that we wish to, I suppose, engage with farmers and uh, we, we would like people to be investing in pine trees as a viable crop on their own back. We don't necessarily have the resources ourselves to be out there competing in that market for land to establish trees in our own right. But if we can partner with farmers who have got underutilised land, uh, lower grade land, sandy country, things like that, the pines will thrive there and it's a, an opportunity to diversify their income as well as uh, participate in the carbon market. 
how far off is industry from having that legal framework? Are we talking weeks, months, within the year? I think months. I would like to think that we may get something launched uh, in, in the next couple of months. West Pine Resource Manager Brad Barr with Jessica Hayes. And that work that's being done with Southwest Timber Hub actually applies to landowners with properties suitable for growing pine anywhere in Western Australia. So it sounds like they're pretty keen to get something happening. I wonder if that interests you. Is that something that you might look around the property and think, yeah, I can spare that paddock and put that part of the property to one side to put in some pine trees? Uh, It is a long-term contract. What did he say? 20, 25 years, something like that. Let me know if that's something you'd be keen on. 0448 29 past 12. And just before the news headlines, just taking a quick look at iron ore prices that just seem to keep going up and up and up. It's been reported by Bloomberg News that this morning iron ore futures in Singapore jumped more than 10% in a matter of minutes to a new high of $226 a tonne. Mining and energy economist Vivak Da says no one predicted this sort of demand from the Chinese steel mills. The key indicator we watch quite closely is what is the allocation for local government bonds. This allocation is spent on uh, infrastructure projects. And last year, it was allocated at 3.75 RMB trillion which was up from 2.15 in 2019. So a very, very big lift um, and something that, that really caught our eye. And, and we knew that demand was going to lift. The question was how much. Uh, the issue that we're seeing in 2021 is we expected them to slow down that spending. And they have slowed it down, but a very small amount. So instead of 3.75 trillion RMB, this year it's about 3.65. And so this, this demand story that we're seeing from China certainly has has legs to run. And, and I think that's really what is at the heart of why China's steel prices have soared, which have really translated through to iron ore prices lifting as well. Commonwealth Bank mining and energy economist Vivak Dahl with Courtney Fowler. 29 to 1 and Jonathan Hopper is here with an update from the newsroom. Hi Jonathan. Good afternoon Belinda. Five people have been stabbed at a supermarket in the city of Dunedin on New Zealand's South Island. The supermarket chain Countdown, a subsidiary of Australia's Woolworths, has confirmed that two employees are among the victims. All five people have been taken to a local hospital with three in a critical condition. Police say one person has been taken into custody. WA has recorded no new cases of COVID-19 overnight. A man in his 30s who has coronavirus remains in a stable condition in Fiona Stanley Hospital's intensive care unit. The returned traveller from India was transferred from hotel quarantine to hospital on Saturday when his condition deteriorated. WA Health is monitoring 18 active cases of COVID-19. And a woman who was bitten by what's believed to have been a King Brown snake remains in a stable condition in a hospital in WA's Pilbara. The woman, aged in her 20s, was walking on a remote trail with friends at Fortescue Falls yesterday afternoon when she was bitten. Tom Price Police and SES took several hours to rescue the woman who was taken to Headland Health Campus. Thanks, Bill. Jonathan, thank you for that update. Appreciate that. 28 to 1. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. 
And between now and the news at one o'clock, you're off to the Midwest of the state, just taking a look around a few farms and seeing the incredible work that's being done, well, you know, by the community, but also by some of those volunteers that just come in and help out wherever they can, just uh, helping out with the fencing or picking up the rubbish, moving things aside just so that farmers can get the work done. And Blaze Aid is really helping out with those farmers who were affected by Cyclone Saroja back four weeks ago when it hit. Also, two markets to get through today. Quite an incredible sale at the Boyan Up cattle market on Friday. John Testro will have the details of that. And then it's off to today's Mouchet cattle market. Tracy Kilner going through the yarding and the prices for you just before the news at one. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Adam Conroy, how's it looking across the southwest land division this afternoon, Adam? Uh, it's relatively settled at the moment. Uh, there is a high pressure ridge developing over southern parts. Uh, the tail end of a weak cold front's moving through the bite, so still a little bit of uh, light shower activity on the south coast, uh, roughly east of Albany, but not too much falling out of that uh, as we speak. Uh, heading forward, uh, we'll see the high move into the bite uh, tomorrow. There is an approaching cold front, which we won't see until Wednesday, but probably late tomorrow afternoon we'll see some shower activity just develop around the southwest capes um, ahead of that front. And it is a little bit unstable, so we might even see one or two thunderstorms in that, but uh, shouldn't get much past a line from uh, Bustleton to around uh, Windy Harbour Walpole by uh, midnight uh, tomorrow night. Then on Wednesday, that cold front will move through. Um, it's fighting against a, a high-pressure ridge that's coming in behind it. So it'll start to slow down and uh, more slide through southern parts rather than being a system that penetrates too far north. Uh, we'll see uh, potentially some moderate falls, I'd say, uh, southwest of Bunbury to Albany uh, just as the front slides through, and there might be the odd thunderstorm particularly just around the southwest capes uh, in the morning. Um, remaining areas southwest around Perth to Israelite Bay are likely to see some shower activity from the front, but generally falls will be quite light. Um, you might get sort of three to five mils near the south coast and west coast, but probably lighter falls inland. And then as that high-pressure system moves in very rapidly, it should then fall apart uh, by Wednesday evening. There is a chance probably during Wednesday afternoon that it does creep up the west coast as far north as Dream Bay, but uh, unlikely to get any uh, further inland over areas uh, on the north of Perth. And then beyond that... Uh, into Thursday and Friday, uh, that high-pressure ridge coming in behind the front will strengthen to the south of the state pretty rapidly. Uh, with that, we'll see uh, moderate to fresh easterly winds over central northern parts of the southwest land division. Along the south coast, we'll be in an onshore stream, so some reasonably light shower activity likely on most, most days, but uh, probably by later on Friday, those showers should clear as the winds start to tend uh, northeasterly. So overall, not too much rain coming, just a little bit on Wednesday around the southwest from this next front. All right, Adam, and how is that system expected to affect conditions sort of in northern and eastern parts of WA? Yeah, we'll see some shower activity dribble through southern parts from that uh, during uh, probably Thursday. Before that, uh, at the moment, uh, the high over southern WA has been dominating the weather pattern up north. Uh, we've had reasonably fresh and gusty easterly winds this morning. Uh, up in northern parts, there's some shower activity moving through the Eucla as we speak as well. Uh, then tomorrow, as the high moves into the bite, uh, that'll clear out the showers in the Eucla, so generally clear across um, northern and eastern parts of the state. Uh, there will be a bit of mid-level cloud sitting over 
the Gascoyne and West Pilbara, but any rainfall with that should remain well west of the state. Uh, tomorrow we'll have some gusty easterlies again up north, probably not as strong as this morning as the high does start to move away. And Wednesday looks very settled uh, throughout northern east, eastern parts. Uh, no rainfall expected, and those easterly winds will have eased by then. Uh, then on Thursday, uh, probably Thursday into Friday, we'll see showers uh, along mostly along the Euclid coast as that frontal system slides through and an onshore flow persists in its wake uh, with the new high-pressure system coming in. Uh, we'll see on Thursday some gusty easterlies through central parts of the state and then by Friday morning that'll push up north and up particularly through the Pilbara and southern half of the Kimberley are uh, reasonably fresh and dry easterlies again up there. And warnings this afternoon, Adam? There's no warnings at the moment, so we did have a strong wind warning this morning off the West Pilbara, West Kimberley and Pilbara coast, but that's eased off now and none expected tomorrow. Great. Thank you for that. 23 to 1. On to the rainfall figures. Looking back over the weekend, here's Richard Hudson. Yeah, not a heap to get through. In the northern and eastern forecast districts, nothing in the Kimberley or the Pilbara or Gascoyne, really. In the interior, Warburton topped it with five. Nothing in the goldfields. In the Euclid air, got four. Nothing out on the islands. And then in the southwest land division forecast districts, the central west... Durian Bay recorded three mils over four days and North Island had two mils and then nothing apart from that. And then in the lower west, nothing over one millimetre. In the southwest, Ferguson Valley Alert Station topped it with 21. Four acres had five mils, Market River six, Pemberton five. And Willie Abrup had five mils. And then in the southern coastal region, Bremer Bay 13, Shane Beach five, Denmark six, Erin Air 10, Esperance Airport five, Hopeton 14 and Hopeton North 12, Munglin up west 9, Pleasant Valley 5. Then in the central wheat belts, Gibrock had 6 mils, and that's the only one worth reading out. And then in the Great Southern region, Chaming up had 5 mils over 4 days. So it might be just cheating a tiny bit to get in today's figures, but anyway, that's it. Thanks, Richard. 22 to 1. And a month after Cyclone Saroja hit the midwest of the state, many farmers are still without power and they're still looking at a very long list of clean-up jobs which needs to be done. Wind from the cyclone pushed debris onto fences and just knocked them over and it also caused large trees to knock them down. But help has arrived. Armed with chainsaws and good spirits, volunteer fencing organisation Blaze Aid has set up camp at Una, which is in the Shire of Chapman Valley. And they're being led by Blaze Aid WA coordinator Judy Bland, who says they've had hundreds of kilometres of repair work in front of them. Mostly reclaiming fences from underneath branches and trees and, and stubble build-up and, and that kind of thing. Yesterday they, the guys spent the day, uh, and it was nothing to do with livestock, but they, they had a lot of um, t- tin debris, building debris, and were really struggling with facing that on a daily basis. So they were able to make a huge improvement there. So it, it's a mixture. We, we're here to help the farmers, and if it helps them to have branches cleaned up out of a paddock because that's the next paddock they want to get into with the tractor, then that's what we'll do. If they've got a shed that's blowing all around the farm, then we'll do that too. It's whatever we can do to alleviate their suffering. How are you going for volunteer numbers? Do you have enough? Do you need more? 
We always need more Joe. There's never too many. <laughs> There's never too many because uh, the nature of volunteers is that they, they might come for a day or two. They might have appointments or plans to be somewhere else uh, and they find themselves with a spare day or two or week or month or whatever. We don't mind and we're very happy to have uh, volunteers who just come on a daily basis. The more volunteers we have, the quicker we will get the, the job done. You've got 36 farms that need attention. Do you know, kilometre-wise, how much fencing you need to clear up or fix up? Um, we, we weren't brave enough to add that up, Joe. <laughs> there are quite a few farms that are saying 20 kilometres of reclamation, 20 kilometres, 30 kilometres of new fencing. Some of that will disappear by the time that we get there because you know they're, they're, they're chipping away at it as and when the opportunity arises. But I think it would run into the hundreds of kilometres of, of fencing that's, that's down and some of it may well just be able to be stood up. Others will, will have to be um, demolished and rebuilt. We've talked about the physical side of what you're doing, coming and clearing things up, standing fences up, but what about the uh, emotional impact of what you do? What sort of changes do you see there? Oh, we see massive, massive changes, Joe. We, none of us are, are trained in, in any sort of psychological evaluation or, or anything like that. We, we're just people who care, and quite often we find that... Um, farmers that have had disasters, they tend not to speak to their neighbours or anyone else who's affected because everyone thinks that the next bloke down the road is, is worse off. So I can't tell him my troubles. And so we find that because we're complete strangers to most people, farmers are often more able to open up to the Blazade volunteers and that's why we love to have the farmers actually working with the volunteers and we find very often that they have not, not been coping at all well with, with facing that destruction every day when they get up in the morning and one day with a Blazade team can make a massive difference to what they see and how they feel and just knowing that that complete strangers care enough to come and and help them. So we do do a lot of emotional reclamation as as much as we do fence reclamation. Blaze AWA coordinator Judy Bland speaking to Joe Prendergast at the UNA base camp. And Blaze is also looking to set up some other camps in the cyclone impacted areas. 17 to 1. Chapman Valley Shire President and Una Farmer, Anthony Farrell, says the Valley community is very grateful for Blaze Aid's help, particularly because the cyclone came at one of the busiest times of the year for farmers, which is seeding. I think it's been a very exciting time for everybody, um, particularly after the devastation and a lot of people sort of didn't know where to start in places and fences down and stuff like that so it's just been a really great help for the community and give that positivity. And it's come at a pretty busy time for you you know you've had this cyclone come through it's all systems go now isn't it? Yeah we uh, we got the rain out of it so we've, we've got the canola in the ground and, and lupins in the ground we started on the wheat and um, you know so we've been flat out doing that and uh, you know we've just pushed 
the rubbish and junk aside and kept going with the, the cropping program so there'll be a, a fair mess to clean up afterwards I'd think. How is the community doing? You mentioned there's a, a feeling of maybe missing out a little bit. There was so much focus on Calbarri and Northampton but three or so weeks on, how's everyone going? Yeah, I think um, everybody's sort of got over the whole shock of it a bit now and, you know, there's still people hurting there. We've done our best to, to help them with community services and Red Cross and stuff like that. But I think the optimism's still there. We got the rain out of it. We're off to a good start to the season. It's just this thrown in the works of it, I suppose. Well, I wanted to talk to you about the good news as well because you have had some lovely rain. You could do without the destruction, but the cyclone also brought rain. You had thunderstorms before that. How much rain have you had here at Una for the year? Yeah, where we are at the moment, we've had close to 130 millimetres of rain, so there's good moisture in the ground. We were crop sowing right along, getting it down into moisture. What happens out of this next lot will hopefully join it all up and we'll be off to a great start. Is this one of the better starts you've had for a while? Certainly to have moisture in the ground, it gives you a lot of confidence. Previous years we've had no moisture in the ground and we've just gone at the hope that it has rained. So having that moisture there, it it certainly gives you a lot of optimism that if we have an average season rainfall, you know, we'll get through with a a reasonable crop. And, you know, 130 mils, it's not just moisture on the top, it's, it's right the way through, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Through the Farm Improvement Group, we've got soil probes around the district, so um, they go down to 70 centimetres. So at the moment, it's showing there's, there's a fair bit of moisture down there stored. So, yeah, if you get a tight finish, it'll start pulling that moisture. Yeah. Having a little bit in the bank's always a nice feeling. Yeah, I imagine. No, <laughs> it, it is good to have that feeling that there's this moisture down there instead of looking at rainfall and what's going to come over the horizon yeah cup and hand sort of thing so yeah what are you putting in this year we've got canola in already there's 500 hectares of that we've got lupins in and and wheat majority of the program still we haven't varied much on what we what we planned on were you not tempted to bang in a bit more canola given the price that we're seeing at the moment on the futures yeah, oh, it's always tempting to do that, but we, we don't tend to vary our program too much of what we do. Yeah, had we not got the summer moisture, we probably would have dropped the canola out of the program, but we had that opportunity, so we did go forward with it. So uh, we may put another bit of canola on some uh, paddock, but, yeah, we're still <laughs> deciding about that one. I can see that you're tempted. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you certainly would be because you don't have to grow much canola to make a dollar out of it at the moment, that price. So, yeah. Chapman Valley Shire President and Unit Farmer Anthony Farrell with Joe Prendergast. 13 to 1. G'day, this is Hamish McTaggart from Vigimai Station and this is the Country Hour on the ABC. And it's great to have you along this afternoon just before 1 o'clock. A couple of markets today, two cattle markets, a wrap of the buoyant upsell that was on Friday and then the yarding and the prices from today's Muche cattle market. First, though, a common food preservative is one of the key ingredients in a new bait being used to kill feral pigs. The sodium nitrate bait took years to develop. The company behind it is Animal Control Australia and Managing Director Linton Staples says it has a strike rate of around 80 to 100%. It's actually a peanut-flavoured paste which goes in little plastic trays and the pigs 
kind of hoover that up with their tongue and gobble it up, but it, it hides within it a high-tech formulation of a food preservative called sodium nitrite that is used in low concentrations you know, to preserve bacon and sausages and all sorts of other things that we, we all eat, so it's quite safe in low quantities. But pigs have a vulnerability to this chemical. It's a bit like carbon monoxide poisoning. You, you die from what is called metabolic anoxemia or anoxia, which is almost insidious. You don't know it's happening. And so it's, it's a very, very big breakthrough for humane control of such a large and aggressive feral animal. But even better than that, once the animal dies, the tissue levels in that dead animal are so low for the nitrite that a scavenger can eat it without any ill effect. And that's all been shown experimentally in, in huge studies done here and in the USA. Is it being Correct. on used farms now? It's just starting. We Last year, it was actually January uh, 2019, we got the approval, or December 2019. Then we did a, a one-year pilot launch. One of the good things about it from a farmer perspective is that the regulatory body has approved this as a Schedule 6 chemical, which means that you don't have to have special permits or constraints in the same way as you do for any 1080-based product or, or certain other chemicals. So this means it's quite easy for a landholder to take up the product and use it and without too many regulatory burdens. One requirement is that they use it in a specially designed hopper and secondly you have to put a sign on the fence in the baited area to say you know you're baiting pigs but that's a minor we provide we provide those signs for free with the hoppers you were saying this particular bait exploits a biological vulnerability of pigs do any other yes. animals share that vulnerability to this bait uh, oddly enough not that we're aware of uh, every animal has a varying amount of a protective enzyme called um, methemoglobin reductase which is actually the reversing enzyme that to keep us all safe because nit nitrite commonly occurs in some fruit and vegetables and things like that so or in water sometimes boil water and things so nitrites exist and we're exposed to them in various degrees you know in many ways in our lives but mother nature is very clever and has equipped us all and most animals with an enzyme that will overcome any small conversion of hemoglobin into the wrong type but pigs have, have the lowest levels of that enzyme of all the animals that we've looked at. So they have a, a big problem. If they get too much of it, they can recover from a small amount, But if they and they recover fully. But if they get too much, their levels of enzymes are too low to protect them, and so they get overwhelmed by it. So you do need a... I don't want to create the impression that this chemical is dangerous in its proper use in the food industry as a preservative because it's quite OK. But we're dealing with much larger quantities and we had to hide those large quantities in a high-tech bait and that's what took the 10 years to develop or 12 years because the chemical itself is completely unstable and so it tries to react with everything you put it with and so it's not an easy chemical to work with. Animal Control Australia Managing Director Dr Linton Staples speaking to Angus McIntosh. Nine to one. Australia's beef exports to the Philippines have had a huge jump in the past couple of months as African swine fever continues to devastate the Philippine pig herd. Mercado's Adrian Ladanewski said it's given Australia's beef industry a chance to really make a name for itself in this emerging Philippine middle-class market. But the problem is he's not sure the dietary change will remain long-term. 
They've lost over 3 million pigs in the last year, um, which is 25% of their herd. Um, and a lot of that's actually come from the commercial um, piggery um, so, um, side of the industry as well. I think that the situation is pro- probably quite tense there at, at the moment. Um, the commercial piggery industry has, has actually de-risked and de-stocked uh, a lot of their facilities. And some of the backyard producers also have been, have been actually converting their um, their back garden dyes into um, different um, enterprises such as horticulture or even fish farming um, if they can afford it. Uh, so there's a lot of fear there uh, about um, losing substantial amounts of money um, in the pig industry at the moment. What are the implications for the Australia's beef exports to the Philippines as a result of that? In the last couple of months, um, Lucas, in March and April, um, beef exports have actually gone up over 100% on a month on monthly basis, um, up to over three and a half kilotons in March, and about 2.7 in in April. So this has been an unprecedented rise um, in um, in beef imports uh, into the Philippines from Australia. Uh, it's been very positive for Australian producers currently. I, I know it's hard to tell the future, but I mean, considering this is just for, um, this is seems to be due to the um, ASF. Is this just a flash in a pan for Australia's beef exports to the Philippines? I think at this stage, I think it'll probably be a bit more of a temporary uh, measure. And uh, once the Philippines does sort out the situation and they start to rebuild their herd, I'd expect that these these increased levels of, of beef export into the Philippines from Australia just to reduce, and probably quite dramatically. However, um, this increased um, consumption of beef by especially the affluent consumers within the Philippines actually may flow through to uh, more sustained demand within the country going forward. Um, and that's backed up also by increases in uh, expectations of increases in incomes in the Philippines over the next few years. And I understand that the um, the Philippines uh, government is considering raising its current pork import quota from 54 kilotons to 400 kilotons in an attempt to keep pork prices under control. If that measure is passed to expand the um, import quotas, will that essentially end uh, Australia's rise in beef exports to the Philippines? Yes, Lucas. I think it's it's very likely that if the quota increase does go through, um, that will result in a flood of of cheaper pork coming into the Philippines at low tariff rates. Um, they'll bring the um, the pork price down, and the differential between beef prices and, and pork will um, will widen again. So, the demand for Australian beef will definitely uh, reduce as a result of that. Mikado's Adrian Ladanewski speaking to Lucas Forbes. It is five minutes to one and to the markets now because there was an extraordinary store cattle sale at Boyan Up on Friday. John Testro was there for the market. John, what's the story? Good afternoon, Belinda. 1,700 head at Boyan Up on Friday. That's up 600 head on the same sale last year, and I thought we were short of numbers. Incredible, isn't it? But uh, Boyan Up certainly delivered again. There was a big crowd of buyers uh, along with interstate competition, and they were all keen to purchase before the end of the financial year. But uh, new records were achieved for beef bread uh, wieners, with steers averaging 5.51. That's up 15 cents on uh, the last sale where they created that record. And the heifers averaged 5.23. Up 75 cents on the last sale, but up 15 cents on the record as well too. So we just keep seeing massive prices. Average price is probably 1600 for steers and 1500 for heifers. But in the uh, Frisian division, the heavy Frisians average 348 up by six cents. 
Frisian yearling steers averaged 400. They were up by 44 cents for the 300 kilo plus. And the Angus Frisian uh, averaged 4.45 and they were also up uh, 10 cents. Bobby Calves in the Frisians, uh, they averaged 5.59. And the Angus Frisian uh, similars averaged 6.39, all up at least uh, 10 cents. Incredible sale once again, Belinda, and uh, it returns again to buoying up in a fortnight's time. But uh, So that one should be interesting as well. I'm John Testro for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the ABC. John, thank you for that, going through that bullion up sale on Friday. Quite incredible by the sounds. And today, cattle numbers dropped a little bit at the Muche cattle sale. 944 was the final total of the yarding, so down about 500 on last week. Tracy Kilner's at the sale. Tracy, can you run through the details? The yarding consisted of mainly store-conditioned cattle, all categories sold with demand. Lightweight local bred wiener steers reached 604 cents while the heifers topped at 480 cents a kilo. A pen of heavy cows sold to a top of 382 cents with most lines selling around the 320 cents a kilo. Wiener steers weighing over 280 kilos sold for 520 to 540 cents while lightweights made from 522 to 604 cents averaging 538 cents a kilo. Local bred wiener heifers sold for 400 to 434 cents for weights 280 to 330 kilos and the lighter weights sold from 400 to 480 cents, averaging 450 cents a kilo. Local bred yearling steers sold for 410 to 556 cents and heifers from 400 to 454 cents a kilo. Pastoral yearling steers sold from 350 to 484 cents for lightweights and pastoral heifers made 258 to 396 cents depending on quality. Pastoral bullocks weighing over 600 kilos made 300 to 334 cents. Grown steers weighing over 500 kilos sold for 328 to 400 cents. And lighter weight steers returned 352 to 468 cents. The pastoral grown steers made 290 cents to 392 cents for under 400 kilo weights. Grown heifers weighing under 540 kilos made 332 to 400 cents, while weights over 540 kilos sold for 340 cents a kilo. Heavy prime cows gained, selling for 290 to 382 cents. Medium weight cows returned 276 to 316 cents, and the light cows returned 248 to 310 cents a kilo. Store cows made from 100 cents for light pastoral types, up to 270 cents for better quality. Heavy bulls sold for 330 to 340 cents to processors. Medium weight bulls made from 296 to 302 cents to processors, and from 340 to 388 cents to export. Lightweight bullies sold from 292 to 486 cents, depending on quality. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you so much for going through those details at the Muche cattle market today, Tracy. Back at Muche tomorrow for a wrap of the sheep market. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. It's going to be a big spending budget with a focus on jobs and aged care, but will it drive the growth the government needs to fire up the economy? A major vaccination hub opens in Sydney, but there's still confusion over who can get the jab and when. And former Australia Post boss Christine Holgate has a new job and it puts her in direct competition with her former workplace. Those stories are more coming up on The World Today. Really good to speak to you today here on The Country Hour and we'll do it all again tomorrow. I do hope you can be part of Tuesday's show. Time now for the news. It is one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.